From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Closing arguments are expected today in the trial of the officers charged in the death of Elijah McClain. As we await that verdict, what's the status of the consent decree put in place after his death, requiring major changes on how policing is carried out in Aurora? Today, we check in and hear different perspectives about how the push for change is going, including from the community members tapped to help oversee the process. Just think of it, if your son was dead, and he said, be patient, give us five years to fix what caused his death. That's a struggle for the community. There are so many officers that are working with due diligence to make these reforms happen. And I acknowledge that and validate it. And at the same time, there needs to be accountability in real time. Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Closing arguments are scheduled this morning in the first criminal trial for officers involved in the death of Elijah McClain, which means a verdict could come down as early as this afternoon. The forceful tactics Aurora police used to stop and subdue McClain four years ago led to a state investigation. It concluded that the Aurora Police Department has a longstanding problem with racist police practices. As a result, Aurora became the first city in Colorado placed under state oversight and is now required by law to overhaul its policies and practices. The consent decree, as it's called, is in place for five years. Today, we check in to hear different perspectives about how the process of change is going. We'll talk to community members and the city today. But first, we talk to Jeff Schlanger, whose company IntegraSure is independently overseeing Aurora's reforms. Jeff, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First, let's clarify what your role is exactly. You were hired to oversee what's called the consent decree, which is the agreement between Colorado's attorney general's office and the city of Aurora to make those improvements. As we've tuned into the trial for some of the officers involved in Elijah McClain's death, we've wondered... How are the reforms going? Do you see any improvements? What's your overall assessment? Overall, the department is doing well in terms of its compliance or movement towards substantial compliance with the consent decree. The consent decree is uh, not a sprint, but a marathon envisioned to last some five years. We're now about a year and a half, a little more than that, into the process. We have examined and reformed a variety of different policies and aspects of policing. And in the next three years, we will be looking to make sure that all of those changes are being felt on the streets of Aurora and that officers are abiding by those reforms. I understand you've started a thorough review of body camera footage in Aurora 
it's also now a requirement across the state for officers to wear body cameras. In your experience, is that impactful? And is the footage actually getting reviewed on a regular basis? The mandate for departments to utilize body-worn cameras is probably the biggest advance in policing technology since the two-way radio. Hmm. That being said, there isn't enough review of what is being done on the streets by police officers so as to correct little mistakes before they become big mistakes. To be clear, are you saying that right now, police departments, not just in Aurora, generally are not reviewing body camera footage effectively? In my view, that's accurate, yes. And one of the things that has uh, stood in the way has been time constraints and understaffing. As I'm sure you're aware, police recruiting has been difficult. Departments, including Aurora, are well below authorized strength in terms of the number of police officers. Mm. So one has to figure out who can do these reviews and then making sure that the reviews that are done are done in a way that gives the community a sense that these are really critical self-analysis. I'm curious about the criticisms about the cameras sometimes being turned off. So body-worn camera policy is something that we looked at initially. Certain changes were made, especially with respect to muting of conversations. And now we are seeing close to 100% compliance with the body-worn camera mandatory activations. So we think we have that issue solved. In your formal periodic updates about how this is going, you've noted some instances where Aurora has missed deadlines to complete parts of the required work. What stands out to you right now that concerns you about Aurora? We are working on bias training. We agreed with the city that they should take a crack along with our experts and outside experts and the community to put in place training that really was going to address the issues of implicit bias and bias policing. So that is one area where we are working diligently and where we expect to get that training done and delivered to the members of the department. The second area of concern is with certain data and old data systems. Hmm. Data is very important to understanding how a police department is operating. I'll give you an example, use of force data from the time of day to the officer, to the demographics of the officer, to the demographics of the individual upon whom force is being used. Mm -hmm. So we need all that data to make certain that the department is not in any way acting in any biased manner and that it is using force appropriately. And we are working to make sure that those systems are updated appropriately so that the appropriate analysis can be done. Obviously, there has been a record here of racially biased policing. 
So is there really an incentive to track that if that is the core issue? Well, I think there are lots of incentives to track it. To answer the question, I'll start by saying that this is a systems issue rather than any deliberate intent to obfuscate the ability to analyze. I believe that the city and command staff, including the chief of police, all want to do the the right thing and make sure that this data is collected appropriately and analyzed appropriately. And they believe, especially in light of the new policies and training, they believe that when that data can be analyzed, that it is going to show good things, not bad things. We've kind of been talking about this in a very formal way, but this is about people. It's about communities. This past summer, a 14-year-old boy by the name of Jordell Richardson was killed by an Aurora police officer. Have you reviewed the details of that incident, and are you seeing any signs of improvement in how it's been handled so far? We're very intimately familiar with the details of the incident. We have not formally reviewed the investigation by the department into that incident yet because their findings have not yet been published. Well, it sounds like there's so much left to do in regards to that case, but can you speak on, are you seeing any signs of improvement even looking at how the case has been handled thus far? Yes, we're seeing improvement in the area of force review generally. With respect to this particular case, I think it's important for your listeners to recognize that even the best department in the country with the best policies and the best training can have an incident like this. We're going to reserve judgment until we review the investigation of this by the department to make sure that it was conducted fully, impartially, and that it reached supportable conclusions of whether or not the actions of the officers involved were within policy or not. The city has to pay your company for this oversight work. Of course, that's part of the agreement the city made with the state. Do you feel that allows you to be independent enough in your assessments of their work? So independence is written into the the contract. We have a five-year contract. It's not as if the city can terminate us if they don't like what we're doing. But really, the larger part of the answer is that we were chosen because the people who are doing this monitoring on my team, as well as myself, have reputations for integrity and expertise in doing exactly this kind of work. Now, you've done this work at other police departments across the U.S., What have you learned from that work, and what can we all learn from the work that's been done in other police departments? We have seen it work time and again. One of the first consent decrees in the country was with Los Angeles and LAPD. And in that city, when we went in as the consent decree monitors, approval of the police department was in the low 20 percent range. When we left, and it took nine years until we did leave, that number was in the 80% range. In addition, in Los Angeles, and I think the same will be true in Aurora, crime goes down, officer safety goes up. 
So it is a long road, but at the end of the road, it should be a win-win for everybody. Have the reforms you helped implement in Los Angeles been long-lasting? Yeah. So one of the things we did in Los Angeles, and we will certainly do here in Aurora, is to make sure that there are processes in place to take over our function when we leave. What we want to do is instill a philosophy of continuous improvement and one that begins with the continuous improvement of each officer in the department. Jeff, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure. That was Jeff Schlinger, the independent monitor whose company IntegraShore is overseeing the consent decree agreement requiring major reforms in the Aurora Police Department. After a break, three members of the Aurora community shared their perspectives about how the consent decree is going and whether they believe the situation there is improving. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Rebecca. And Luis, the host of Music Blocks. A podcast about your favorite sounds, how they're created, and what makes them special. We're returning for season three. And this season, we're talking about instrument families. The different instrument families share connections that span the globe. In different cultures. In different genres. The new season of the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Find it wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Before the break, we talked to the person in charge of overseeing Aurora's reforms to law enforcement. Now we're talking with three members of the community who have been involved with how all this unfolds. They're each part of the official group of 12 Aurora residents who are advising on how Aurora reforms its public safety protocols under the consent decree. Janina Horton grew up in Denver and works in the field of civilian oversight of law enforcement. She is now with an organization called the Denver Justice Project. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thomas Mays is a pastor and a Vietnam veteran. He's also currently running for city council in Aurora. He has served on several civilian boards that have worked to shape policing in Aurora. Welcome. Thank you. And Reed Hedick is also a pastor. Pastor Hedick has also been involved in several efforts to improve policing in the city. Welcome. Glad to be here. So you all bring a lot of experience to your roles on this advisory group. We're going to talk about whether you're seeing change underway in Aurora and what you want to happen next. First, I'd like to hear from everyone about why you volunteered for this. Janina, how do you hope serving on this advisory council can impact your community in Aurora? I would say the reason why that I joined the council is that I'm looking for accountability and transparency in law enforcement in my Aurora community. And I understand you've also lost family members to police violence. Yes, I have. Pastor Mays, what about you? What do you hope will come out of this effort? Well, I've been working trying to, I say, restructure rather than reform. I just use a different terminology because... I want to see real change. I don't want to see us repeat the efforts we've made over the last 30 years and think we're going to get a different result. So by being on the council, I hope I can bring something to the forefront of, hey, we've already tried that. It's obviously it didn't work. Let's try something new. I understand your granddaughter played a role in encouraging you to keep working for reform. 
Yes, yes, she did, because I was ready to retire, sit back and take it easy, do some traveling. Everybody was excited. Oh, we get to spend some time, and, and we had a tight-knit family. And then my oldest granddaughter says, I understand, Papa, I'm happy for you, but can I ask you one question? I said, certainly. Does that mean you're giving up on us? Mm-hmm. And I says, wow, it's like a dagger in my heart. I says, no, I can't give up. So I decided I guess I'll just have to wear out rather than rust out. I don't think I've ever heard you put quite let that way. (laughs) So, Pastor Hedick, do you see any particular hope in the consent decree to bring about change? So, Aurora's our home to where we live. Like Dr. Mays, you know, that's where my kids grew up. It's where my grandkids live and go to school. And there was a sense that this really could make a difference in our community. And I do have some hope that this process is different than some of the processes of the past in that there, you know, there's real teeth with the attorney general you know, behind it and the attorney general watching it. And there's been a lot of eyes on this entire process. And so I am optimistic, even though it seems like it moves slowly, that some real change can take place. And from what I understand, you as a white man have not had difficult experiences with law enforcement, but you've heard from others that they have. Yes. When I hear stories from my friends that have experienced those kinds of things, it's not something you can just sort of sit back and say, well, it doesn't impact me directly, so I'm not going to worry about it. It may not even impact my kids or grandkids directly, but it impacts our, our friends and people that we, you know, live next to, we work with and go to church with. And it's just not acceptable to sit back and say, since it doesn't directly affect me, I'm not going to get involved. For each of you in your role on the community group, I'd like to hear how you think the reform effort is going. Overall, what's your assessment? I would say it's going slowly because you do have to lay groundwork. You have to write policy. You have to change culture. And all of those are slow, hard work. Pastor Mays? I agree with Pastor Reed. It's a process. I think the difficulty is is um, neither the police, and this is the police and the fire rescue or in the consent decree, but I don't think those organizations or the uh, consent decree monitor realizes you're talking to a community that has some wounds and you want them to have patience, but just think of it. If your son was dead and he said, be patient, give us five years to fix what caused his death. That's a struggle for the community. And being African-American myself, a pastor, and uh, dealing with this all my life, even the stories my father had told me, forced to say, you know, it's going to be a long process. Well, I understand that because I'm involved. I understand it because I'm close to the situation. But the community members that we represent and that talk to us and call us on the phone, they're not that close to the situation to see that uh, it will take a long process So I'm not happy with how slow the pace is going. And what really makes it slower is the stumbles in the step. When they make the stumbles, other incidents occur, then that's what really gives a perception or maybe it's the reality that we're not moving forward quickly enough or maybe not moving forward at all, that we're just going through the motions. Janina, what do you say? 
So when we did our road show this year, a lot of the feedback that we received from community is we didn't even know we were in a consent decree. I think there's an opportunity for us as a council, for us as a city to really work with other community leaders to educate community members about the consent decree, what it is. So that way, when we need to push on the departments for change and for those policies and practices, so we're not just secondary opinions, but we're providing primary input, we can have a stronger community presence behind us. As some of you have said, the consent decree monitor, Jeff Schlinger, has asked people to be patient He explained the work that's taking place so far is laying the groundwork for change that Aurora residents will notice on the streets. Pastor Hedick, you've expressed hope that this process overseen by the attorney general will produce the kind of change you've wanted to see for years. Is it living up to its promise? And I suppose the most honest answer I can give you is I don't know. I don't know yet. And so I am choosing to remain optimistic and staying engaged, and we have to stay engaged to make sure that we make the most of this. Pastor Mays, would you like to jump in on that? I absolutely would. You know, I believe communication is key, and I think that's one of the breakdowns in the entire process, that getting the facts back to the community is difficult so when you're talking to them, they want you hey, tell me what's going on. Show me, make it easier for me to understand what's happening because I don't see it. And then, of course, it's just our nature to see the negative before we see the positive. So when we have further incidents, then people are concerned. Is it actually happening? And then they, basically we come back with, well, you know, we don't have the statistics. It's not being reported. There is no information. We haven't been able to follow up on that. Those are the handicaps that comes with uh, the consent decree because at the end of the day, why aren't you keeping statistics on that? Because that is the problem that people of color are being treated differently than others. Those are the type of statistics we need to have. We need to be able to give to share with the community that everybody that is being stopped, regardless of color, regardless of their uh, economic standing, they're being treated equally. Janina, do you believe that the kind of change that has been requested is happening? Simply no. And I I say that as someone who has advocated for social justice in my work, when I previously used to work for the Office of the Independent Monitor in Denver as the co-executive director of the Denver Justice Project, patience is a luxury that our communities just cannot afford. And I also want to, you know, preface that with saying, you know, there are so many officers that are working with due diligence to make these reforms happen. And I acknowledge that and validate it. And at the same time, there needs to be accountability in real time. And as you all know, in June, a 14-year-old boy was shot and killed by police. His name was Jordell Richardson. How did his killing and the response by the police chief afterwards affect your impression of whether there's been progress improving policing in Aurora? You know, I attended one of the community meetings before the video footage was released to the public. And the chief, he did, I would say, for in his position at the time, a commendable job of describing the the video footage of 
informing the family, keeping them abreast about the process of the investigation. And the same truth is that there is an expectation that law enforcement will not be charged or will not be held accountable for their actions. It's a continuously repetitive process of that lack of prosecution to law enforcement and their actions. Pastor Hedick, what do you want to say about the killing of Jordell Richardson? Well, first of all, I mean, what a tragedy. It actually just happened just down the street from my office. And it's just a tragedy every possible way. And one of the things that I think is just hard for people in a community to swallow is how a kid, a kid can be, you know, I- engaged with trained police officers that have all kinds of training and non-lethal weapons at their disposal and how a kid ends up being dead there. And I don't, and as a community, I don't think we can be satisfied that we can somehow say, you know, that's okay. And, and again, I'm, I'm not an attorney and I'm not weighing in on, on the, you know, all the legal pieces. I, I can even somewhat understand that maybe there is not criminal legal charges levied against those police officers, and yet it's just not right. It's not acceptable. We've got to do better. And one of the things that we've talked about quite a bit with the consent decree monitor in our group is to make sure that the APD in particular, and Aurora Fire Rescue is part of this piece too, but to make sure that they don't somehow not aren't satisfied with just not being criminally liable that somehow that isn't a win that they have to be learning from each of these incidents this continual learning kind of process pastor mays i understand that you believe the officer accidentally shot him that's my perception of looking at the video i had the honor of doing the eulogy for jordale and I seen the family, how they were crushed, especially his brother, overwhelmed to the point we almost had to carry him. He was so distraught, his baby brother gone. And because of my history uh, with the NAACP and the uh, Greater Metro Denver Ministry Alliance, I see this so often. Many of the white people, not all white people, but a lot of white people say, well, if he would have not been committing the crime. And my response is always, but did he have to die? I agree they should be arrested when they commit a crime. I agree they should be go to trial and there should be some restoration. How can we fix this? But do they always have to die at the hands of of a police officer that have so many other alternatives that they could use? And we have 90 or maybe even 95 percent of good police officers. We make mistakes. We're human. They are human. They're going to make mistakes. They have a right and a desire to go home to their families just like all of us do. So when this happens, I look at it and I say to myself, well, how can we make the adjustments? How can we make the changes so that we can just live? It's very unfortunate that we have to tell our black young black men and our young black girls when you're stopped by police, take on the slave mentality. Don't look them in your eyes. Just answer the questions. Don't do this. Don't do that. And just swallow your pride. Humble yourself down just to survive. Mm. 
And that hurts me to say, we got to go back to that slave mentality, figure at when a police officer pulls you over, you have absolutely no rights. You can't ask them any questions. You can ask them why they're stopping you without them thinking you're challenging them. That mentality, that's why I say we have to restructure the, the police department and not just Aurora. Law enforcement uh, nationwide needs to have that happen. I want to ask a philosophical question. It strikes me there's not a great mechanism for holding police departments as a whole accountable for misconduct. Look at the situation with Elijah McClain's death. Five officers and paramedics are set for trial. They may individually go to prison, but I'm not aware of an option to charge them as a group or to get penalties for the departments as a whole. Yes, this consent decree is mandating reforms, but that's not exactly a penalty. Have you thought at all about whether there's a better way for actions born out of dangerous cultures and policies to be penalized? It's, it's really unfortunate that lawsuits is the other remedy. So you can file a lawsuit, but what amount of money takes the place of your son? I think when you're talking about a systemic system like law enforcement, it has been rooted in white supremacy in our country. And it's an organization that we can try to reimagine or restructure or revision. But there's always going to be the history and the roots of law enforcement, right? That it's rooted in the capture of people that were enslaved. And so my answer to that question is that I think it's important to rethink about policing in a way that how do we find alternatives? How do we invest in mental health professionals and substance abuse and addiction professionals? Because we can't expect law enforcement to know all of that. And I think there is an expectation right now for law enforcement to do everything, right? Pastor Hedick, do you want to? add something to that? Sure. I think there has to be a way to impacting the structure, the system, and not just individuals. Again, far from perfect, but that is part of what the consent decree is supposed to do, is change some of the system and change some of the culture, change some of the policies and practices and, and the way those get carried out. We've got to look at the bigger picture. Not to belabor the question, um, when you look at the Elijah McClain case, it seems to be a lot of finger pointing. Well, yep. they stopped him. He did this. The paramedics gave him the ketamine. It's a lot of finger pointing. I guess I'll just throw it out to everyone here. Are you surprised that they were not charged in more of a collective way as a group of people who contributed to one situation as opposed to individual actions? No, I'm not surprised by that, but... Or does that concern you? Oh, oh, yeah, I think definitely concerns us because it was all of those pieces that mm -hmm. were done wrong that resulted in a death of a community member. And it, it seems like our system gives that finger-pointing legitimacy. Pastor Mays, were you surprised? I was not surprised, and I won't be surprised... Were you concerned? I was more than concerned. I was torn so much so because 
I didn't know uh, Elijah, but when it happened, it was like it was my child. It was part of me. And even after that, just a few blocks from my home, when they pulled over a black family and had them lay out on the asphalt, a six-year-old child laying on the asphalt, and with all of those officers there, why didn't one of them, just one of them, say, hey, that's enough? And I'm appreciative of one of the things that they have in place now to where uh, an officer, once they've got a person uh, subdued, they have to subtract themselves from the situation and bring on uh, fresh officers that their adrenaline is not going. But is that something that's truly going to happen? And I understand that there's a lot of violence on the street. There's a lot of people carrying guns, uh, children carrying guns. I understand that. That's why I didn't apply to be a police officer, because I'm not going to have to deal with that. But those who applied to be a police officer and were sworn to serve and protect, they asked for that. They applied for that. So, no, I'm not surprised that they don't do it collectively. But if you're complicit to it, I think you're just as guilty as the one that pulls the trigger. You're just as guilty as the one with the chokehold. You're just as guilty as the one with the ketamine. You're just as guilty because you were complicit. You let it happen when you could have stopped it. Mm-hmm. Think about it. If a uh, place gets robbed, they don't just charge the one carrying the gun. They don't just charge the one carrying the money. Everyone involved on the criminal side is charged. There's a lot of people that are serving time in prison right now, and they didn't pull the trigger. Mm-hmm but they could have prevented it because they were in the car. Maybe they were the driver. Maybe they were just sitting in the back seat. but they're penalized as well. And they put them together as a group. No, you were involved, so you're guilty by association. Why shouldn't it be the same thing with police officers? Janina, you worked in the Independent Monitor's office in Denver. Omar Montgomery, who co-chairs this community group you're all a part of, and he also happens to be the president of the Aurora chapter of the NAACP. He's advocated for this. He told us he wants to see Aurora establish an independent monitor that would be separate from the consent decree monitor role. Can you explain why a permanent independent monitor would be important to establish in Aurora? And how do you think it would be different from what you all are doing with the consent decree? So with the independent monitor, it's important to have established in our community and in our city agency and be fully funded. It allows accountability and transparency of law enforcement agencies to community. It builds a sense of trust. I believe, between law enforcement and community, it's more than just monitoring cases of misconduct, right? That this is about policy, looking at policy. We can look at the specific language being used, right? Law enforcement may see something and say they may do this. But from a community perspective or from an independent monitor's perspective, it could be like, no, they shall do this, right? And then also I think outreach is important for an independent monitor's office. It's important that we hear from community organizations and community members about their experience, that people are out um, in the streets getting those complaints and accommodations, right? I want to point that out that an independent monitor's office is just that. It's independent. It's not an advocacy organization. And so it's an opportunity for an agency that is robust, that has those three components, that can monitor the cases, that can monitor the policies and propose policy and do the community outreach as needed. 
And I'm going to manifest it. When we have an independent monitor for Mm. Aurora that is in the city budget that has the money, we can actually outreach to community in a proactive way instead of always being reactive. And we should point out that the Aurora City Council decided in 2022 to get rid of funding it had set aside for an independent monitor. Their explanation was that they would add it later. They just didn't know that they needed to have an independent monitor while we had the consent decree independent monitor. I think we thought they do because it's a different function there. Pastor Hedick, you observed a meeting of the Forest Review Board. That's a group of senior people inside the police department who review how officers handle a certain incident. It stands out to me that this is the group that signed off on how officers forcibly stopped Elijah McClain, an encounter that led to his death. So what was it like to be in on a meeting of that board where they discussed an incident where officers used force? What did witnessing that reveal to you? It was very educational. Everything came from a very police department perspective. And so I think it was healthy to hear them kind of totally dissect that and what went wrong or when things went wrong. But it was the police department policing the police department. Mm. And so it was that. And that's why, again, the independent monitor is so important in both actuality and reality and outcomes and the perception. And the consent decree monitor, Jeff Schlanger, says after his team criticized them and coached them, Aurora police are making progress on more critically reviewing officers' conduct. That is what we are hearing as well. And uh, and that is good to hear. But again, it's, it's hard to know what that really means and where that goes. Pastor Mays, we mentioned that you're running for city council in Aurora right now. I say that for transparency, but it's also relevant to this discussion in that voters will consider what they want the future of public safety to look like in this city. We've been talking about this very specific consent decree agreement between the city of Aurora and the state to reform its practices and culture. I'm curious to hear from each of you as residents What do you want the future of public safety to look like in Aurora, Colorado? I would like more funding for the Aurora Mobile Response Unit. If folks are unfamiliar with it, it's a co-responder model where you have mental health professionals and behavioral health professionals who respond to low-level calls. Um, so that so kind of like the STAR program in Denver? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. And those kinds so, of those programs are, are spreading across the state. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then I would like to see some more community forums about redefining what public safety really looks like. Pastor Hedick, what do you want to say about the future? Whenever I think about the future and sort of the vision of what policing could or should be in Aurora, I remember being at a meeting. And there was a young mother, young black mother, who sort of answered that question. And she said, I wish I could be confident that policing in my part of town is just like it is in other parts of town. Mm. And that seems like actually a fairly low goal (laughs) that, that there just be equity. I think that's interesting when you juxtapose the reality that Aurora is the most diverse city in our state. 
Pastor Mays, you get the final word. I think back to Rodney King in the early 90s when he said, can't we just get along? Can't we just get along? It would be ideal to me for us to treat one another like the scripture says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I wish we would treat everyone like we're one big family. Mm-hmm. We're growing. We have growing pains, and we know we're going to have some uh, disagreements. But can we disagree without becoming disagreeable? Mm. And that's on both sides, community and law enforcement and AFR. All of us, all of us have those biases. We've got to get find a, a place where we can come together. So if I'm black, let me be black. If you're white, let you be white. If you're an immigrant, enjoy that culture and and celebrate our differences and our diversity. That's what I would like to see. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thomas Mays, Janina Horton, and Reed Hedick all serve on a community advisory council overseeing mandated police reforms in Aurora. The consent decree's next progress report is due this month, and the Community Council will host a discussion October 24th. Art Acevedo is the interim police chief in Aurora. He told my colleague Allison Sherry that change has to start with leaders like him. The consent decree means that the organization, the leadership, the people tasked with recruiting, hiring, training, and supervising this workforce, that's who's failing here. And I've told this to my officers. We looked at some of the controversy outside of the officers involved, what's really exacerbated and fueled the outrage from the public and the damage to the members of this department are some of the decisions made by leadership. Interim Chief Acevedo says he believes many officers are hungry for what critics are also requesting clear expectations and consistency in enforcing the law in Aurora. When we come back, I ask Aurora City Manager about the push for an ongoing independent monitor for Aurora PD. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the mountains, foothills, and suburbs, Colorado's magpies are a majestic sight, with striking white and black plumage that in certain light also shines with a cosmic blue-green iridescence, and elegant long tails extending well past what other birds think a suitable length. A reputation for thievery follows the magpie, but when it comes to stealing eggs, they do much less damage than house cats. To protect their own eggs, a breeding pair of magpies will engineer an elaborate domed nest, with a female taking care of interior finish. Like their crow and raven cousins, magpies are among the smartest animals in the world, solving puzzles and recognizing themselves in mirrors. Chattering at the edge of an open space, those magpies may simply be seeking solutions to territorial disputes, and thus do not call them a flock. As a collective, they are a parliament of magpies. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Aurora is the first city in state history that's required by law to make changes to its public safety practices. The agreement under the Attorney General's office is a result of a state investigation that found a pattern of racist policing and the unlawful use of sedatives, such as ketamine, which contributed to Elijah McClain's death. We've heard from members of the Community Council assembled to oversee this process and the person hired to guide the changes underway, as well as the police chief. 
Now we bring interim city manager Jason Batchelor into the conversation. He's worked for the city for 15 years, mostly in finance. He took over the city manager role in an interim capacity last spring. Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me today. I look forward to uh, our conversation. Members of the Community Council have said they would like to see the city establish an Office of the Independent Monitor to oversee public safety practices. It would include funding for proactive community outreach on a permanent basis. As we've mentioned, the city does not intend to fund that right now. Why isn't that a priority for the city of Aurora? Once we entered into the consent decree and we have the services and function of the independent consent decree monitor, we did not want to have any overlap or confusion. So as we come into full compliance with the consent decree, and as we see the consent decree monitor begin to wrap up their work, that is something that we fully intend to include back in, you know, the office of the independent monitor to provide sort of a lot of the same services that the consent decree monitor is providing currently. We've heard from the consent decree monitor that Aurora is making progress slowly but surely. Community council members are saying they're hopeful, but quote, patience is a luxury that our communities cannot afford. From where you sit, how are the public safety reforms going? I understand both perspectives, and that is that these are very important reforms. They are reforms that have to be done uh, properly and done well. Uh, And that sometimes means that we need time to review best practices, to review uh, the changes that are needed, and then develop the policies that will ensure that those reforms are lasting and they make the impacts that we want to see. So uh, that does take time. I understand the concerns from the community. Uh, I would say that we are absolutely committed to the reforms that are reflected in the consent decree. We're going to make sure that we do this right and we do it well. And I think we have seen progress. This is a marathon. This is not uh, a sprint. Is there anything you're particularly happy with or concerned about? I think the things that we have seen really measurable impacts almost immediately is in some of the changes we've made into our hiring practices. We really, um, under the consent decree, had seen the need for changes. And so we've seen, you know, a very large class just start the academy 33 folks started uh, at the beginning of September. Those are numbers that we've not seen in several years. And so just that increase in the number of officers coming through, they're coming through a very rigorous process. That is, you know, making sure that we're getting the right candidates in there, but we're also getting the number of candidates that we need to see uh, to fill the vacant positions that we uh, have. And so we're seeing people that are stepping up, that are committed to policing in Aurora, they're committed to policing well, and they understand the consent decree. They want to be part of those reforms that are in the consent decree. So I'm most proud of that, that folks are stepping up. They want to be part of this department. And so that makes me uh, proud that I've seen. The one that I think I would say that I'm I'm not concerned on, but I know is going to take time, the reforms associated with data, you know, that, that in terms of reporting on it. And I think we're going to work on, I think it's probably one of the larger challenges that remains ahead of us. In regards to the methodical nature of the changes underway, one person told us, you're talking to a community that has some wounds, and you need to understand that when asking for patience. So how is the city working to earn more of the public's trust and their patience as the policing reforms are being implemented? 
it is going to take years to rebuild that trust. It has to be consistent. It has to be, you know, uh, visible. And then we also know that trust is something that just, you know, a few high profile incidents absolutely can erode that trust. Can you give me an example of something you've done to build trust in patients? One of the things I think we've tried to do is is in our transparency. So one of the requirements of the consent decree is that we uh, reform our policies around combating racially biased policing. And so as we were examining some potential training for the department, we invited members of the Community Advisory Council in to go through that training with us. Give us their feedback. Is this what you're looking for? Is this what our officers need to be hearing? Is this the type of training we should be doing? And we took that feedback. You know, They went through it with us and trust is built through transparency. And I think that is an example where we need to do more of that. We understand there are concerns. There are parts of our community that are hurting, that have deep concerns about their interactions with police. And I would sort of say, you know, to that, we also know that we're also in a very unique time here in our country and, you know, in terms of overall police reform that, you know, there's a different expectation from most communities as to how they're interacting with their police department. So we think that the consent decree is a roadmap for us to make ourselves better, to provide the service that our uh, community expects and that they want to see. And so we think the consent decree is ultimately a, a good thing for us. It's a roadmap to rebuilding trust and to best serving uh, our community and making those feel safe in their community, you know, wherever they are and, and whatever their backgrounds are. Jason, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the time and uh, have a good day. Jason Batchelor is the interim city manager in Aurora and the lone candidate to fill the role in a permanent capacity. We've been talking about the consent decree, a formal agreement between Aurora and the attorney general's office to change the way policing is carried out in Aurora. It's the result of a state investigation that followed the death of Elijah McClain. Individual police officers and paramedics are criminally charged in that case. A verdict in the first trial is expected soon. Find complete coverage at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.